aside from the Song of Songs and maybe Judges chapter 20, that passage that Rich just read is easily one of the most graphic, provocative, and shocking chapters in the entirety of the Bible. Few dare ever read that chapter, and those who do sometimes wish they hadn't. And the reason for that is because Ezekiel 16 rehearses the history of God's love and choice of Israel in the form of a story. And yet it's a story filled, and you can tell, with scandal, with betrayal, deception, divorce, and even spiritual prostitution. And you see, the story goes, God loved Israel. He loved them. He chose them. He singled them out and selected them. He adopted them. He even, in a sense, married them when he saved them. And he made covenants with them, marriage vows to the people of Israel. Out of all the nations on the face of the planet, they became the special object of his divine affection. Could have been and it should have been the ultimate rags to riches story. And for a while, that's exactly what it was. Under David and Solomon, there were 50 years of marital bliss. Something happened in the hearts of the people of Israel, something deep and dark and disturbing. You see, instead of loving Yahweh as the treasure of her soul, as her husband, she instead plunged herself into a life of spiritual prostitution and adultery. And she chose the brothel of idolatry instead of the beauty of matrimony. She slept around, as it were. She got into bed with false gods and into the arms of other lovers. Saddest thing of all is she literally could have had it all. She could have had everything. It was all just there for the taking. She had Yahweh. She had his love. She had grace. She had a kingdom. She had all the salvation blessings with which he wanted to lavish her. And she squandered the cheap thrills of idolatry and spiritual prostitution. And hearing that, you would think, well, that's it. That's it. This is over. God's plan for Israel is finished. This is done. The divorce is final. God is moving on. He's going to start a church, and the nations will be his new bride. You would think that would be the case. Except for the fact that Ezekiel 16 ends with these words. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am Yahweh, so that you will remember, and you will be confounded, and you will not open your mouth anymore because of your shame. When I atone for you, Covenant, that's the operative word. That's the most important word in the chapter, and the reason for that, because that's the most important word in the Bible. And the reason for that is because a covenant is a promise. A promise of sovereign grace that God would save them and redeem them and never, ever forsake them, and he would do whatever it takes to give them everything he had promised them. That is a covenant. And God made lots of covenants in the Bible, and yet there are three covenants in particular that are particularly pertinent 
to you. There is the Abrahamic covenant, there is the Davidic covenant, and there is the new covenant. And they were bought with a price. They were sealed in blood. They are our deepest foundation and highest hope and happiness forever. You see, these covenants are like a wedding ring, like a GPS, and like a pair of 3D glasses. The covenants are like a wedding ring. You see, God made vows to his people that he will never break. These covenants, you understand, they are a, a GPS. In other words, they tell you where God's plan is going and even how the world is going to end. And finally, these covenants are a pair of 3D glasses because without them, the Bible is fuzzy and odd and strange and hard to follow. But with the covenants, with the covenants, my, oh, my, the Bible glows with life. It's clear and profound and relevant with radiant applications. Because you know that in a few weeks, we're going to begin the thrill ride of the prophet Isaiah. Chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse, we're going to plunge ourselves deep into the ocean caves of Isaiah's prophecy. And we're going to see theological pearls that are so dazzling, you won't even believe that they were there. You'll be sad you've never seen them before, but so glad that you see them now. And yet apart, apart from the sheer size of Isaiah, which is 66 bulky chapters filled with all kinds of theology and history and poetry, the common complaint with the prophet Isaiah is, I just don't have any idea what he's talking about. Who he's talking about. Where he's talking about. When he's talking about. Who and what and where and why is this even in the Bible? How does this even apply to me? See, you and I both know that reading the book of Isaiah can be a dizzying and disorienting experience, right? Unless, unless you know, you love, and you understand the covenants that God has made. You get the covenants, you get the book of Isaiah. You get the covenants, you get the So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the covenants of the Bible because the covenants, you understand, these are the framework of God's plan. These are the structure of the saga. They are the navigation system through which the drama of redemption unfolds in the Bible. Bottom line, these covenants, these guarantees, these vows of sovereign grace, they are the deepest theological foundation in the universe that God is sovereign, God has a plan, God will save his people, and that God is going to win it all in the end. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see three biblical covenants. Three biblical covenants that unfold the plan, that give us hope, and help us understand Isaiah and the Bible as a whole. That's where we're going. Three biblical covenants that give us hope, that unfold the plan, and help us understand Isaiah and the Bible as a whole. And the first covenant is this, number one, the promise of global blessing. The promise of global blessing, which is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Because you see, what we should never, ever forget about the Bible is that the Bible is not, it is not a random collection of miscellaneous tales. Rather, what it is, is a drama. It's a sacred script. It's a theological play. 
It's a masterpiece of redemption that reveals this riveting plot crafted by the triune God infinite centuries before creation to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. You see, to be or not to be, that is not the question. Nor is it even our choice. Rather, we simply find ourselves here on the stage of history, being swept up into what God is doing in the world. And Luke, maybe I'll take the lapel. I can hear this thing kind of going out. So if you want to get that ready, and I'll give you the signal. We find ourselves swept up into what God is doing on the hum- in human history, which began infinite centuries before time, when nothing existed except God. You see, all of history is what I like to call a theodrama. A theodrama, theos meaning God. Drama from the Greek word meaning to do. You see, history is what God is doing in the world in history. And what God is doing in history is wildly dramatic. You want proof? There it is. Lights, camera, action. Act one, scene one in the Bible explodes with creation as God speaks the universe into existence out of nothing. And in that universe, he has a planet called Earth, and on that Earth, he puts a massive, breathtaking, exotic garden. And in that garden, he puts the first two people ever created, Adam and Eve, our first parents. And created in God's image and likeness, their job, job, you remember, was to rule and subjugate the Earth, right? They were to establish and build a kingdom on the planet. The man was a king, the bride was his queen, and the calling was to spread and fill the earth with God's glory by multiplying image bearers all over the face of the planet. And for a while, our parents lived in paradise, and it was perfect. It was perfect. Everything was exactly as it should be. What we, what they got to experience, what we wish we could enjoy. For a while, it was perfect. But you know that paradise was lost in the third chapter of the Bible. As our first parents unleashed the virus of sin into the world, which, unknown to them perhaps, that would set off a chain reaction that without God's intervention would send the entire human race and and destroy. Okay, I'll go ahead and take a pause here. All I need is the... see. Where was I? Everything we wish we had now, they got to experience. But again, paradise was lost in the third chapter of the Bible. They unleashed the virus of sin into the world. Okay, I guess I said that. Okay. So without God's intervention, the entire human race would plunge into eternal ruin and destruction. But God did intervene, didn't he? He did. He showed up to the crime scene of our first parents, and not only did he announce a curse on sin, he also announced a savior from sin, didn't he? In Genesis 3, 15, he announced that a seed, an offspring, a redeemer would emerge from the human race, and he would crush the head of the serpent, and he would single-handedly solve the dilemma of sin. And so what we see even in the third chapter of the Bible, that God has a plan, and he has a plan for the world. But then you fast forward centuries later to Genesis chapter 11 and the train work of the Tower of Babel. Remember that? The seeds of socialism. 
Mankind was joined in a united coalition of evil against God. They refused to spread throughout the earth because what they wanted was not God's glory, but their own glory. God shows up, intervenes, breaks up the party, scatters people all over the face of the planet, and voila, nations are born. Think about that for a second. That nations came into existence as a judgment on sin. So here's the world filled with nations in rebellion under the wrath and judgment of God. And get this, in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, God interrupts the life of a wealthy pagan businessman named Abram, and he makes an unbelievable promise. And I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, again, chapter 11 was the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, God interrupts the life of Abram. Abram, here's Abram, minding his own business, worshiping the moon god, and God speaks. Here's what he said. And Yahweh said to Abram, you go from your land and from your relatives and from the house of your father to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will bless your name, and I will make it great, and it will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, those who curse you, I will curse, note this, and in you all the nations, literally families of the earth, will be blessed. Huh. You see what God is doing here. He is advancing his plan of salvation by choosing a people through whom blessing would be extended to the very ends of the earth. And it's very clear that it is Abram and his descendants. And I want you to notice what it is that God promised to Abram. There are three things. Number one, a land. A land. Abram, one, leave your land and go to the land that I will show you. That land belongs to you and to your descendants forever. Promise two, a nation. A nation, Abram, verse 2, I'm going to make you a nation, a great nation, a nation of prominence at the very center stage of human history. That's very important. The fate of your people, Abram, will affect the fate of everybody else on the planet because notice promise number 3. Notice what else God includes on the contract, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, those who curse you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what we see here is that the Abrahamic covenant, this is not just a Jewish thing, this is a nation's thing. You see that God is going global in his covenant with Abraham. It affects every single person on the planet in the history of the world. Why? Because in and through Abraham's descendants, blessing would come to the very ends of the earth. I mean, you see what this is, don't you? Listen very carefully. God is promising Israel a place of prominence on the earth as the appointed instrument through which the blessings of salvation reach to the very ends of the earth. And that word nations in verse 3, that's, that's a very interesting word. That is not nations like geopolitical states. No, that word means people groups. It means tribes, ethno-linguistic people groups from every nation on the planet. And in other words, what this is, is a global plan to save the world is what this is. Which is really interesting, isn't it? Because Revelation 5.9, 
Yes, flat. <laughs> is, this, is this not on? It's on. Okay. Well, thank you, Vlad. I was worried that I was going to have to call security or sign in what was going on. <laughs> get, my, get my knife here. It's, it's just Vlad. It's just Vlad. Apologies for the sound. We'll do our best to give you God's word. Our word nations is really interesting because does not Revelation 5.9 say that Christ purchased some from every tribe, and tongue, and nation, and people? It does. Does not Daniel 7, 13 and 14 say that Christ will rule a global kingdom and be worshipped by the nations? Does it not say that? It does. What is that? What are those passages? Those are the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That is precisely the blessing that is being referred to here from Genesis to Revelation. All of it hangs together. So think about what, what is God promising here? Put the pieces together. We see land, we see nation, and we see blessing. What is the promise? Do you understand what the Abrahamic covenant is? What it is, is that it contains the foundational promises reverse the curse of sin and win back everything Adam lost in the garden at the that's what this is one more text and you got to see this Genesis 17 go ahead and look there Genesis chapter 17 because again and again and again Yahweh reaffirms the covenant with Abraham chapter 13 14 15 and 17 and I want you to notice 17 verse through eight, where God not only reaffirms the covenant, but he expands the covenant. Look at the text. Now, Abram was 99 years old, and Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and between you, and I will multiply you exceedingly, literally in the Hebrew, very, very. And Abram fell on his face, and God spoke to him, saying, I, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father, notice, of a multitude of nations. And no longer will your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, because you will be the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you very, very fruitful. And I will make you, give you as a nation and king forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and between you and between your offspring after you as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you to your offspring after you, the land of your sojourning, all of the land of Canaan, notice as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Well, that was a lot. But how many times did God reference the covenant? Three times. Three times, and notice, notice Yahweh said that this covenant was not only with Abram, but also with his descendants forever. Look at verse 7. Yahweh calls this Barit Olam, and if you want to get technical, and I do, it is literally a covenant of eternity. Meaning what? Meaning that these vows, these eternal promises to ethnic Israel has to be fulfilled to ethnic Israel, otherwise God is a liar, because that's what God does. He makes promises to undeserving sinners, and then he keeps those promises to undeserving sinners, and I want you to know 
Notice four kinds of blessings here, four kinds of blessings in the Abrahamic covenant. First, there are personal blessings to Abraham. He would not only become a great nation, but even kings would come forth from his line. Think about that. Kings, in particular, a king who would rule the world. Number two, there were national blessings for Israel. Israel as a nation, they would be a great nation and they would have their own land as an everlasting possession. Think about that. Israel, literal, physical, geographical place on the planet. And they would have it forever. And as we're about to see, one day the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will rule his kingdom from that country. Third, there were universal blessings for the nations. Verse four said that Abraham would be the father of of a multitude of nations, meaning what? Meaning not that we are physically related to Abraham, but through faith in the Messiah, the nations receive all the salvation blessings through the people of Abraham. And fourth, there would be eternal blessings for both Israel and the nations. Because how many times did God say this would be an everlasting covenant? You have to understand, everybody in the Bible understood, believed that this, by, this covenant, this promise would be fulfilled exactly as it appears in the text. And see, the reason why I'm telling you all this is because this covenant is a wedding ring, it is a GPS, and it's a pair of 3D glasses all at the same time. So you understand this covenant, you understand the book of Isaiah, you understand this covenant, you get the whole Bible. And here's one reason why this matters, multiple reasons why this matters. Here's one thing to think about. You see, this covenant to Abraham is literally the foundation of world missions, is it not? Because God did say that through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. You see, any real sustained passion for world missions has to begin here with the covenant of Abraham because here we see a global plan of a missionary God to save a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. In other words, this is the guarantee that the Great Commission is going to succeed. So that's the first covenant that you must know. The second covenant is this, number two, the promise of an eternal king. The promise of an eternal king, which is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. Because you remember that when our first parents released the radiation of sin in the garden at the beginning, you remember that God showed up and promised that there would be an offspring, a descendant, a redeemer who would come on the pages of human history and he would crush the head of the serpent. And you see, ever since that initial promise, the Jews were looking and waiting for the great serpent crusher to appear on the scene of history and occasionally God would tip his hand and reveal a little bit more about his identity. And wouldn't you know it, one day God revealed in a prophecy to King David that that great serpent crushing savior would be none other than a descendant from his own line who would come as a king and reign forever. And we see it in 2 Samuel 7. Go ahead and turn there to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 verse 8 through 16 in your Bibles. If you know anything about 2 Samuel 7, this is literally the Fort Knox of God's promises, so much gold contained within. You get this, you get this covenant, you get these promises, you get where human history is going. Look at the text, 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. 
spoken to the prophet Nathanael, and it says, Now thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I have taken you from pasturing the sheep, from following the flock, to be a ruler or leader over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them. And they will dwell in it. And they will not be disturbed anymore. Nor will the sons of wickedness again afflict them as in the beginning, even from the day I commanded judges over my people Israel, and you will have rest, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And Yahweh declares to you that he will make a house for you. Listen carefully. For when your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, then I will raise up your offspring after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Notice the language. He will be, he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will strike him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But, but my loving kindness will not die as I made it depart from Saul, who I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure ad olam forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's a mighty big bite to eat, isn't it? But did you notice, did you notice the staggering promises that God made? But there are at least four promises in that text that should be turning our heads right now because every single one of these promises await their full and final fulfillment still in the future, which means what this is, is eschatology. Promise number one, the greatness of David's name. The greatness of David's name, look at verse nine. And he says, I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. What does that mean? It means that God would use David and his family line to play a prominent role in the pages of history. One day, every single person on the planet will know the name David, the son of Jesse. Why? Because contained in that name is all the hope and joy that everybody is looking for. Promise number two. A permanent place to call their home. A permanent place to call their home. Look at verse 10. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them in it. And they will dwell in it. And never again will they be disturbed. I mean, we see this before, haven't we? That this land promise, it is a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. The, the guarantee of a land in which to live. Notice the verbs. Notice the verbs, I will appoint a place for them, I will plant them, they will dwell in it, and never again will they be disturbed. And just to give you some perspective here, Israel has about a quarter, less than a quarter of the land originally promised to Abraham. More than seven million Jews live outside of the land of Israel, many of them in defiance and hatred of God and unbelief of the Messiah. Mark my words, a day is coming. A day is coming when there will be a new 
exodus. There will be a new deliverance, a repentant Israel restored to the land, finally obtaining everything God has promised. If you don't believe me, listen to Ezekiel 36. Listen very carefully. Therefore, thus say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, bring you into your own lands. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause cities to be inhabited and waste places to be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated and become, get this, like the Garden of Eden. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, Yahweh, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, Yahweh, have spoken and I will do it. We must face the facts. Land is part of the deal. Promise number three. Promise number three, an unprecedented era of peace. An unprecedented era of peace, which has never truly happened for Israel ever in the history of them as a nation, nor anywhere else for that matter, but one day it will. Look at verses 10 and 11. And never again will they be disturbed, nor will the sons of wickedness afflict them anymore as in the beginning, even from the day when I commanded judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest from all of your enemies. One day the day is going to come when the great high king comes to claim his throne and all the wars and tensions of the Middle East will cease. Bloodshed, tyranny, violence, war, corruption, scandal, it'll be over. It'll be ancient history. And this is exactly what the prophets confirm. Isaiah chapter 2. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2, what it, what it describes It describes Yahweh being on the earth, which I take this to mean even the Messiah himself. Listen carefully what it will be like in that day. It says he, Yahweh, will judge between the nations and he will decide with fairness for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nation will not lift up war against nation. Never again will they learn war. What is being promised? What is being portrayed? One day a time is coming in the earth when they will dismantle atomic bombs and they will do away with the military because they will not be needed anymore. Why? Because Yahweh will be the king and speaking of a king, the best for last. Promise number four, a future king who will reign forever. Look at verses 12 through 14. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, then I will raise up your offspring, your descendant after you will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Father to him, he will be a son to me. Now, I know that the verse goes on to describe kings sinning against Yahweh and being chastised, disciplined with the rods of men, and clearly that refers to Solomon and all the other kings who would follow. But a day is coming, day would come when there would, there would be a king who would not need to be chastised, a king who would be sinless, a king who would be perfect, a king who would fulfill everything that God, that was, God was promising here. And what it is, 
as an everlasting king who will reign forever. You have to understand that this, this holds the Bible together. This is a gravitational center that holds the Bible together. One day, David, in the future, he would have a descendant, an offspring. And what's really interesting about that word offspring, zerah in the Hebrew, as the exact same word used in Genesis 3.15 that promised that an offspring would come from the line of the woman and crush the serpent's head. You see, God is making a connection. More and more we find about the Redeemer to come, that he would be a king who would have an everlasting kingdom. That's where history is headed. A descendant of David who will rule the earth the way it is supposed to be ruled. This is all the prophets singing the exact same note. I mean, you remember Isaiah 9, don't you? 6 and 7, I cannot wait to get to this. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the dominion will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. As for his dominion into peace, there will be no end. And on the throne, get this, of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from now and until eternity. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. That is where human history is headed. Isaiah 33, 17 says that when that day comes, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. And we know exactly who this sovereign king is, don't we? Who reigns forever. It is exactly who the angel Gabriel told Mary who was supernaturally conceived in her womb. Luke 1, 31 through 33. The angel shows up and he says to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus he will be great, and he will be called Son, Son of the Most High. Get this. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. Here it is. Forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, you see how this is holding together. And maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds really great. But to be totally honest, it sounds a little, oh, I don't know, Jewish. What about us? What about the Gentiles, non-Jews? What about us? I mean, are we, are we just an afterthought? Are we a footnote in God's plan? And the funny thing about it is that the Abrahamic covenant already told us, didn't it? From the very beginning, God chose Israel to be a channel of blessing to all the nations. And you understand the Davidic king is the secret to the entire operation. He not only purchased with his blood some from every nation, but when he returns, he will rule the nations, which is exactly what Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says. Daniel 7, 14 says, to him will be given dominion and majesty and a kingdom and all the nations and peoples will serve him. His dominion is a dominion of eternity, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is where all of human history is headed, you understand. And what that means for you, what that means for you is that the happily ever after of your life has already been written. It's already been written. I mean, think about it. The eternal destiny of your life and the eternal destiny of God's plan are inseparably intertwined. His future victory is your future victory which changes everything about the way you view your lives in the present, doesn't it? 
Anything you must suffer, anything you must sacrifice, anything you must give up for the sake of Christ will be repaid 10,000 times over in the kingdom when Jesus Christ returns. And an odd-sounding implication, but I'm going to say it anyway, I think it's very important for us to think about this, is we all want to live lives of meaning and significance and satisfaction, do we not? We do, and that's a good thing. What if I told you that contained within the Davidic covenant, get this now, contained within the Davidic covenant was the guarantee that you could have the most significant job on the planet. In other words, what if I offered you the job, get this, as co-ruler with King Jesus in his kingdom? What if I offered that to you? Because you might think that's crazy, and that's not crazy. That's a real thing. That's a real thing, and it's going to happen. You see, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will co-rule with him in his future kingdom. Where is that in the Bible? Thanks for asking. 2 Timothy 2.12, it says that if we endure with him, we will reign with him, with him, reign with him. The end of Revelation 2 and the end of Revelation 3 says that Christ will give you, give you, give us authority over the nations. And they will, we will sit with him on his throne, co-ruling the world, just like we were created at the beginning. I mean, think about it. Think about the very beginning, what were Adam and Eve called to do? Rule and subjugate the earth. Don't you see? The Davidic covenant is not just the reign of Christ over the world. It is the restoring of the human race to rule the world, just like we were created to at the beginning. Here's the payoff of that. The payoff is you may never get the house you want or the job you want or the money you want or the career you want or the spouse you want or the physique you want, but one day you will get the king you want and he has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Now, very quickly, covenant number three. Covenant number three, the promise of a new heart the promise of a new heart, which is the new covenant. The new covenant. And you see, if there is a new covenant, that raises the question that there had to be an old. And the question is, what is wrong with the old covenant that necessitated a new and better covenant come and take its place? Right? That's the question. And the answer is, the answer is the old covenant was good and it was holy, and it was good, and it had its own intrinsic beauty, and it did exactly what it needed to do. But one thing the old covenant could never do, you understand, was save a sinner from destruction. The fatal flaw of the law was that it could not awaken a sinner from spiritual death. It had the power to conform a its regulations, but it did not have the power to transform a sinner in their affections. You see, at the end of the day, the purpose of the law was to show people they could not keep the law and that they needed, that they were great sinners who needed a great savior to do divine reconstructive surgery on their souls, which is exactly what the new covenant is all about. Jeremiah 31 you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34, one of the sweetest headlines in human history. Yahweh says, behold, the days are coming when I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah a new covenant. Not 
like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the hand of Egypt, land of Egypt, which they profaned, and I was not pleased with them. And so what we see, a new covenant, right? Not like the old one, covenant 2.0, a supernatural upgrade. This one is radically different from any other covenant God made in history. Well, what is the covenant? He goes on. Verse 33, he says, for this is the covenant which I will make with Israel in those days. Listen carefully. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on the tablet of their heart. And I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will not remember. Do you hear what he says? This is a total bombshell. I mean, think about how the world would respond if they found a cure for cancer. Most dreaded disease in the world. There'd be a global celebration right here. God just revealed the cure for spiritual death. The cure for eternal wrath and judgment before the almighty God. I mean, because the question is, I mean, do you know the most devastating dilemma of the human race? What is the most devastating dilemma facing the human race? What is it? It is not AIDS. It is not poverty. It is not world hunger. It is how do hell-deserving sinners get reconciled to God as the treasure of their souls? And the answer is the new covenant. The new covenant. Which is what? What did God say? One day he would engrave his law onto the human soul. He would inscribe his word onto the very heart. What is he saying? What does this mean? It means radical internal transformation of the human soul. Because remember, these covenants are given precisely to reverse and restore what Adam lost and ruined at the beginning. And what the new covenant provides is internal, radical, supernatural transformation to make us a people fit to rule with Christ in his kingdom. And you remember Ezekiel 36, don't you? Also the new covenant. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be cleansed from all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. By the way, if you belong to Christ, this is what happened to you. If you don't know Christ, this needs to happen to you. I will give to you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. I mean, do you see what the new covenant is? What it is is the equivalent of God doing a spiritual heart transplant in the heart of a, in, inside a dead, defiant sinner that hates God and defies God and ignores God and exchanges God and gives them a warm, tender, receptive heart that loves God as the treasure of their soul. That is the new covenant. So you see, I mean, you think about it here. We live in a world where people are changing their gender. They undergo, they, they mutilate their bodies so that men can be women and women can be men. What is happening? 
What is happening here? This is madness. Don't you see? Don't you see? They are trying to accomplish with an operation on the outside what can only be accomplished through a transformation on the inside. What they and all sinners actually want is the kind of internal transformation available only in the new covenant. And you remember how we get access to the new covenant. How we get access to the salvation blessings Christ told us, didn't he? Over a candlelit dinner 2,000 years ago, he held up a cup full of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So these are the covenants. These are the covenants, and if you get the covenants, you get the book of Isaiah. If you get the covenants, you get the whole Bible. And if you get the whole Bible, you get where human history is headed and where it is headed is a global kingdom with the serpent crushed, paradise regained, the curse reversed, and with sinless, resurrected, glorified bodies. We will see the king in his beauty and forever the theme of our song will be worthy is the lamb. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're thankful for the drama, the sacred script, the theological play that your word is. We're grateful that you have chosen to sweep us up into what you're doing. We are grateful, O Lord, to see from the inside out the drama of redemption being unfolded in the world, O Lord. We have from your word a perspective that the world does not have. We see, O Lord, that all is not lost. In fact, nothing is lost. We see that you are in absolute sovereign control, and we cannot wait for the ending. We cannot wait for the kingdom, and even beyond that, the new heavens and the new earth. We cannot wait for that. We long for that. The mouths of our souls water for that. Lord, I'm asking is that you would help us to be a people who proclaim that. Oh, Lord, you have given us the most unembarrassing message in the world. Oh, Lord, that we don't offer people, we don't only have to offer some do-over or some turning over a new leaf, but what we have to offer are infinite spiritual blessings purchased and paid for by you, Christ, in the new covenant. What we have to offer is a king who will reign forever. Help us, O oh Lord, to be a people quick to speak the gospel and everything it contains. Thank you so much for this time together. In your mighty name, amen.